All right, welcome to Bet the Edge. I'm Jay Croucher. We're going to talk NBA with Drew today, and then we're going to get into some French Open men's and women's side. Talk about the outright markets, but Drew, let's start off with the Boston Celtics, uh, who saved their season last night. And uh, so last night, well, firstly, after Game Three, <laughs> I backed the Celtics twenty-five to one to win the title, twenty to one, eighteen to one. We talked about the reasons why earlier in the week, and I couldn't watch. <laughs> The first half last night, because I was at dinner, uh, but I met with the friend who was who's also on the Celtics, being like, "How do we look?" And he said, "No, uh, they're playing harder, but the process is still all broken. They can't do anything in the half court. There's no penetration. It's just side to side around the perimeter, just taking threes. Uh, and even if we eke this one out, it doesn't bode well for the rest of the series." get home, watch the second half, and they find something in the second half where they render their half-court issues kind of meaningless because they're just getting every defensive stop and playing in transition, and then they're making their threes in the half-court. And so I think the lesson with this series uh, is, and look, the Heat are probably still going to win the series, and we'll get into that, but the lesson is is that even when things look hopeless, these series, they are amorphous, and they take different forms, and all that really matters is that you keep eking out results to give yourself a chance to find something later in the series. You just need to keep breathing until you find something. Do you think the Celtics found something last night? I I was told the series was over, Jay. Uh, what are you talking about? I, I'm we're, we're on to Heat Nuggets. I was pretty pretty convinced by a lot of people saying this. Um, no, it's the Celtics have definitely found something. Um, they found they found heart. <laughs> I'll tell you this much: if you didn't watch the first half of that game, your commentary from your buddy was correct. It did not look good. The Celtics were playing extremely poorly. Uh, the degree of turnovers, particularly from the ball handlers, was startling. Um, but they made up for it with inspired offensive rebounding completely out of nowhere. All of a sudden the Celtics were getting every offensive board and they were, you know, beating the heat, uh, you know, clearly in the second chance points department, uh, Al Horford, you know, finally figured, found his shot and one of the best three point shooters in the NBA this season. All of a sudden he, uh, he found his range after having a miserable month of May so far. So um, it was, uh, it was pretty, it was, it felt, not bad, I think, being only down six at halftime. Like, I can't explain it any better than, like, if you had Celtics any position at all, you felt like, okay, we're within 10, they have a chance. And, uh, you know, and then I definitely would, you know, hat tip to, you know, the way that, you know, some of the adjustments they made at halftime, um, you know, the the Heat, I think, largely stubbed their own toe in a lot of respects with some of their shot selection. Um, it looked pretty clear that a lot of those players felt like, oh, I am God. I can make every contested three. This is, you know, who cares about quality of shot here? We don't need to make the extra pass. I'll just, you know, I'll just take this heat check uh, three. And eventually they stopped going in. Um, and we were kind of expecting some regression at some point. It happened pretty aggressively in the you know third, you know second, third, and fourth quarters last night. And uh, now we have ourselves a series because Celtics are huge favorites to win Game Five. I don't know that I am running to the window to lay three hundred. <laughs> I'm certainly not. I uh, have much happier with my Celtics series position than I would be laying that price. Similarly, with minus eight, like these, I think we've learned pretty clearly that every game, you know, home court does not matter a ton in this series. 
road team has won three out of four. Uh, and, you know, I think it's going to take another kind of find another gear, uh, you know, you know, figure out another couple of wrinkles because, you know, the, what the Celtics did to kind of snap out of their funk offensively last night didn't necessarily look sustainable. Um, but at the same time, you know, that they, they if they can play from ahead, uh, and if they are, you know, doing that, if they are playing that inspired, particularly off the boards, um, then, you know, the Heat are going to find themselves in some distress if they're not making those luck box threes. Uh, and so I think Celtics ultimately win game five. And I'm going to have a long, hard think between now and tomorrow about taking the eight points with the Heat as a, you know, middle shot there. Um, and I look over 216 a little bit just in the you know, in the, in the, in the, um, realistic expectation that the Celtics offense continues to cook, you could see like a 120-108 type of game, uh, in game three. I mean, it's to be in game five. Um, and I may be getting way out of my skis here, but I have, you know, I would love, love, love a game six total to open up in the 216 range. <laughs> that would be just tremendous to bet it under. Uh, and, you know, I think, we're a long way from the finish line here. Yeah, I think the Celtics, uh, it's it's weird. Like last night, I think they showed that I still think they have the highest ceiling of any team because when they play defense like that, I think that makes them the best team. It's just they don't get to that level consistently. The only really two times that I've seen it were weirdly the second half of game four against Philadelphia where the Celtics ended up losing that game. But defensively, like they broke Joel Embiid in that game to the point where PJ Tucker is having to give him a pep talk on the court because the Celtics defense has just broken the MVP. And then last night in the second half when Grant Williams is blocking Jimmy Butler, stopping him <laughs> and grabbing the ball. And I don't think the Celtics half-court offense, I think now we've got 11 games of sample against this Heat team across the two Eastern Conference Finals that the Celtics just aren't going to have that much success in the half court against yeah. the Heat because Tatum and Brown, they just struggle so much dribbling against this team and getting dribble penetration and passing and making the right reads because the Heat defense is so connected, it's so smart, and I just don't think that they're going to have amazing success at the same time, if you've got Tatum and Brown and shooting, it does give your half-court offense some sort of flaw, and that floor is going to be enough, and they get out in transition because people always talk about how the Celtics are more talented than the Heat. What they really mean, I think, is that the Celtics are bigger and stronger and faster than the Heat, and they can assert that on defense and in transition and in semi-transition, and they started to do that last night for the first time in the series. And also the Heat just didn't shoot that well. And I think this is a reminder that you know, everyone after game three is like, well, the Celtics, they're just a broken team. Like they gave up. Like I think a lot of the times we just conflate mental state with just shooting luck and shooting variance. And the fact that, you know, the Heat came into last night shooting 20 or 34 on wide open threes in the series uh, and the Celtics were 14 or 43. And if you yeah. just kind of flip the percentages, then the Celtics are up 2-1 or 3-0. So uh, I think that a lot of that is just... Um, and also, I think another thing to remember is that people really overreact to really emotionally charged results. Because to me, the Celtics title price after game three, the biggest parallel I can think of to that is the Ohio State national championship price after they got blown out at home by Michigan, left up to 40 to one when it should have been like 
10 to 1 because people just could not believe the result and they couldn't believe that the Celtics went down 03. Whereas if you just math out the money lines, you're never going to get close to 25 to 1 for the Celtics title. <laughs> and also, it's like, it's three games. And the first two games were coin flips that could have gone either way. And yeah, they let go of the rope in game three, but you just can't say with complete confidence that the team is just totally done, that yeah. they've let everything out there. And now all of a sudden, it's a series. And I think that... I mean, what do you think game six will be if the if the Heat do lose game five? Celtics minus four. Um, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I, I really do think it'll because the the wave is already coming. It's coming and it's going to be strong. I can't. I can barely imagine what game seven would open. I don't. I hope we see it just so we have like a, a like a oh, historical oh. marker. You know, like I would like to know what it ends up being because this is this this entire series has been goldfish brain. Like people forgetting, you know, if what have I seen most recently? That's what's going to happen, uh, and that's that that happens in the playoffs for sure, especially when there's only one series to really pick apart. Um, and yeah, I mean, to some of your notes, like I, you know, the Celtics letting go of the rope in Game Three, it wasn't an elimination game. Who cares? Like they were not winning that game. If they want to save their bolts for Game Four, that is fine. It does not. In, is that a broader indication of the state of the team? Um, a couple other just quick notes that I have for you, just to file in the back of your brain. Mm. Joe Mazzulla figured out timeouts. He now knows what a timeout is. <laughs> yeah. um, that was. That's. An, I'm not joking. This is an important development, Jay. Maybe not even for this series, but if they get to a finals, this matters. Um, he now knows when to take a timeout to to arrest a to arrest a uh, a momentum swing. Um, and Jalen Brown has the yips from the free throw line. I don't know if you saw you, if you, I don't know if you, if you, if you watched back that first half, but, no. uh, he had a, he had a, he had a couple of O's, uh, from the free throw line there. Um, I thought the Celtics exercised an enormous amount of patience in the first half of the, of the game, because a couple of key, they, they were a little testing the refs in terms of aggressive defense and got some early fouls, but they didn't like kind of lose their minds. And, uh, you know, I think everybody kind of taking two fouls into the, you know, into the locker room at halftime, they were like, okay, you can be aggressive again to start the second half. They're going to let us play at some point. And I think the letting them play was a you know huge factor of them ultimately having success defensively last night. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, I really think, uh, uh, you know, some players around the margins are going to decide this series one way or the other. Um, and to your point about the Celtics are the more talented team. Yes, but in a lot of ways, it's just name recognition. Really? I mean, the quality of play you've gotten from a guy like Caleb Martin, this, this series has been incredible. And, yeah. uh, you know, he may have just taken a meaningful step forward in his progression. And we know we don't know who he is, whereas you know exactly who Marcus Smart is. He's the reigning defensive player of the year, Jay. Uh, so it's 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 much more about, uh, I think, just name recognition. And, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think the Celtics are still very, very, very live in this series. Uh, pre-series price for a sweep was plus 350-ish. Pre-series yeah. price for the Heat to win the series was plus four hundred. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think we should be surprised if we get to a game seven. No, absolutely not. And also, like people penciling in game six, like Boston can absolutely lose game five. It would be incredibly Celticsy to lose yep. game five. The Heat might just shoot well, and and it's over. And I don't think this Boston team is 
good enough or playing well enough to necessarily withstand another heat, you know, outlier shooting performance um, because I don't think the gap between the teams is big enough um, for them to do that. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's going to be a fun series. At least we have um, some basketball. I don't think at the current prices that there are any real futures bets on these markets. Like, I think the Celtics should be plus 230, plus 250 true price to win the series if you kind of math out the money lines, if you think it's going to be like minus eight times, I think it'll be more like Celtics minus one in game six. But, you know, these prices are just being pulled out of hats. The fact we go from Celtics minus four and a half, game three to heat minus one and a half, game four. So I don't know what the game six price is going to be. If it gets to game seven, you would think it would be minus eight and a half, minus I got, five. I got one fun one for you. Yeah. How about this for a little defense on uh, on a Celtics uh, futures price? Heat money line parlayed into Nuggets ship. Well, I because the, the nu- you, you saw the well, I'll figure it out. But you knew you know where the you know where the Nuggets you saw the Nuggets price kind of drew, come back to earth. Yeah, that was what we were, were we talking about two fifty yesterday. If this is uh, a nu- two ninety two ninety oh two ninety okay so yeah if 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 this is Nuggets heat. I mean, my fair price there is almost minus. It's like minus three fifty, minus three sixty. Uh, so I think you're getting, you know, if the Heat win, holding Nuggets minus two ten is enormously plus EV. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, finding a way to parlay those two, I think, is is kind of fun. But uh, yeah, you got to be a little creative. <laughs> yeah, I I last night did outline that like I'm extremely confident the Nuggets would beat the Heat in the finals, and you can't, you know, you can never dismiss. Jimmy Bam and Spo, so fraught with peril this playoffs, but I would be stunned um, if they beat the Nuggets. If it's Celtics Nuggets, I got no idea what happens at that point. I've got no idea yeah, what happens. That series. I think that's supposed <laughs> to pick, um, yeah. but we're going to need to get there in the first place. All right, can we talk about the French Open? A reminder to download the Roto World app to receive breaking player news all season long. Stay ahead of the competition by favoriting players on your roster. Get the latest injury updates, player news, and much more delivered right to your phone. It's available in the App Store today. For the world's greatest athletes, this is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? In Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. All right, let's go to Paris, uh, to Roland Garros, the French Open women's side, which uh, is a lot more interesting than it seemed like it would be three, four weeks ago, where Iga Sviantek at one point was like minus 160 in the market. Now she's a lot closer to even money, uh, coming off a loss and now a little bit of an injury concern. Uh, and now it looks like, well, there's certainly three um, ladies at the top in Sviantek, Sabalenka and Rybakina. Uh, but I wouldn't write off uh, Krajikova either and also wouldn't necessarily write off potentially a long shot. Um, because this this is more wide open than it looked like it was going to be. Uh, yeah. What's your breakdown of the field? So Iga should still be your number one with a bullet here. Um, as even though she hasn't really picked up the hardware on this, you know, she's she won Stuttgart, but she didn't win Madrid. She didn't win Rome. In fact, she got beat by Sabalenka and you know, Rabakina of Rabakina via retirement. Um, 
it doesn't so she doesn't have the momentum coming into this tournament that she has had in years past however you kind of break down the hold break uh statistics so far on clay this year uh Iga is holding serve better than she was last year when she was absolutely unbeatable on clay and her break numbers aren't that far off so really all i can tell you is this isn't necessarily about Iga not being as good as she was last year it's much more about the top of the field kind of coming to her uh, and closing that gap. And we saw it with the quality of play at the Australian Open between Sabalink and Rabakna in that final was uh, was superlative. That was some of the best women's tennis I've ever seen in my life. It was amazingly good. And they have obviously closed the gap on Iga. Um, and so the pre-draw kind of handicap here comes down entirely to uh, who gets, you know, really just can you make a bet on Sabalink at 6-1 to one? really is where I'm at. Iga's going to be the one seed on the top. Arena's going to be the two seed on the bottom. Uh, the Rubakana draw is going to be fantastically interesting because if she gets drawn into the top half, then all of a sudden Iga's win equity gets slashed because that head-to-head in a quarterfinal or a semifinal would be a very, very good contest. My fair price on Iga versus Rubakana in the conditions expected at Roland Garros if Iga is dealing with no injuries whatsoever, uh, my fair price is Iga minus 275. So it's not that outrageous to think that uh, Rubakana could beat her head-to-head at Roland Garros. Um, my fair price between Iga and Sabalenka uh, in the Roland Garros conditions is plus 190 for uh, Sabalenka. So we're talking about like more than a 30% chance that she has uh, that she can pull off a head to head win. Uh, so basically, I'm at the point now where um, I'm waiting patiently to find out if Rabakana is on the top or the bottom of the draw. And as soon as I know, I'm either firing Sabalenka or I'm firing Iga, frankly, because minus 110 is a good price if she only has to play one of those other two women. Um, Iga, I will note, is. Not, you know, that she has some benefits of the scheduling at the French Open in terms of not making, not, not um, uh, exacerbating the injury. She, uh, you know, best of three tennis, you get a day off between matches. She's had an entire week to regroup from Rome. Uh, so I, and, you know, and by the way, week one, she's going to be going up against some qualifiers and some, you know, some women that she's going to be able to beat six, zero, six, zero. So, uh, she shouldn't have to sweat too hard in week one. It's just all going to come down to what kind of physical state she's in in week two. And who does she have to go through? If she has to go through Rubakana and Sabalenka, then minus one ten is a bad price. <laughs> if she can go through only one of those two, then it's a good price. Uh, so that's kind of like the macro setting. Um, everyone in that middle class, including your girl, Kuchikova, has not been playing especially good tennis, and they haven't been playing a lot of tennis on clay. Like they've, there's been a lot of early outs, not a lot of reps, and a lot of these women, I think, are going to be subject to upsets early on because below that middle class, the long shots, like you mentioned, there are some very, very, very talented teenagers that are coming through qualifying right now who are going to be tough outs. Of course, you remember the U.S. Open where Emma Raducanu went through qualifying and then went on to win a title. There are definitely women that fit that description coming from the Russian contingent and the uh, Czech contingent at this tournament. Uh, Women who won juniors here, women who are finalists in juniors here the last handful of years, uh, they are going to be tough outs. So um, I would say that in general, while there is a big three in this year's women's field, uh, the likelihood that you have, uh, you know, some 
relative unknown go on a sun run is not out of the question at all. And I think you could see a lot of these kind of middle class uh, contenders go by the wayside before we even get to week two. Yep. I'm uh, going to throw some names at you. Some of the, the longest shots, not necessarily the teenagers, but the bigger prices, because I do think like there is this idea of the inevitability of eager at Roland Garros, which is, you know, justified in a way, but also it's not like she's one ten, and it's not like <laughs> French because one, she's got an injury thing at the moment. And then two, it's just best of three sets. It's not best of five. So there's more variance. There can be a four flukish result. Okay, so okay. some of the longer shots that I've bet recently, um, Ostapenko, 40 to one, Vondrasova, 60 to 1, Kasatkina, 120 to 1, and then there's some Kredjikova at uh, 20 to 1. You know, I think at the Australian Open, uh, I was calling her Rybakina, and you were saying Rybakina, and now we flipped. One of us has messed it up. It's unclear who real pick market there. Uh, what do you think of those long shots? I, on the on the Rybakina pronunciation, at, on the WTA website, they have a little audio clip of every yeah. woman saying their own name, and she says it two different ways. I've listened to it a hundred times to try to get it right. And she's, she's, she's inspiring some of this uncertainty, Jay. Uh, it's coming from the top. Um, I like some of the prices you got for sure. You're not getting anywhere close to, would you say uh, 50 on Ostapenko? 40. 40. 40? That's yeah, not getting anywhere close to 40. Uh, you're not getting anywhere or close, or you probably shouldn't be getting anywhere close to 120 on Kasatkina. She's Kasatkina's uh, break, break, percentages in this clay season have been outstanding like she is definitely uh not going to be an easy uh pushover her serve is kind of the key problem but if i'm shopping long shots jay i'm going way further down the board um there are two uh two russian qualifiers who are coming through right now and of course they have to get into the field first but uh, their sisters uh the uh the andrivas uh, there is a 16 year old, uh, named Mira Andriva, uh, and I believe her sister, it starts with an E, maybe, um, Elena Andriva that they, they are steamrolling good competition right now in qualifying, and they are going to be extremely tough outs. And you could probably get 500 to 1000 to one type of prices on them right now. If people aren't uh, paying attention to some of the lower, you know, bottom part of the board, um, similarly, Right now on points, but I'm looking at it. 500 to 1 for Elisabetta Cocchiaretto. Elisabetta <laughs> Cocchiaretto. Okay, so first of all, she's Italian. And would you believe it? Of every woman that's played on clay in 2023, she has the highest break percentage of any player. Uh, and if you add hold percentage and break percentage together, which is a decent indicator of how, uh, you know, what current form is for a given player. Um, now, you know, she's not playing the same level of competition as Iga or Sabalenka. Um, but she is a top six right now in hold break on clay in 2023 so far. So I think uh, she should be way shorter than 500 to one to win this title. And I'm very much hoping she gets drawn into the weak quarter of the draw. Because if you were paying attention at the beginning, if you're out of Iga's quarter, if you're out of Sabalenka's quarter, and then if... Uh, Rabakana ends up in her own quarter. If you're out of that quarter, then you are very live to make it to a semifinal here. Uh, and so I think really the name of the game is look at the draw, circle that quarter, and let's find some weak shots. And uh, and then I want I want the best player on the opposite side of the draw because there's just going to be a natural imbalance with two of the big three being on either the top or the bottom. 
Okay. Well, I can't bet on Italian tennis players anymore after what Yannick Sinner has done for me and my family and my spirit over the past couple of years, but uh, that's okay. We'll talk about Yannick on the men's side, but first, a reminder that Sunday morning means MLB leadoff. Watch exclusive live games all season long on Peacock. This week, we are featuring a powerhouse matchup as the Los Angeles Dodgers take on the Major League Baseball leading Rays in Tampa. Coverage begins at 11 a.m. Eastern this Sunday. All right, French Open men's side uh, fulfilling the historic Rafael Nadal role uh, on the odds board is Carlos Alcaraz this year at plus 125. Novak Djokovic, who does not look like Novak Djokovic at the moment, he is plus mm-hmm. 225. Holger Rune is plus 900. Sitsipas, uninspiring, 12 to 1. Medvedev playing on pretty well on clay relative to what he's done in the past. He's 12 to 1. And then your man, Yannick Sinner, bang up my What's your breakdown? I like Sinner for this tournament. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I think I think the top two are backwards. Uh, there seems to be this kind of um, sentiment around the betting tennis betting community that the torch has been passed from Nadal to Alcaraz. Maybe, <laughs> but uh, Alcaraz has a long, 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 long way to go to um, to get the reps in best of five slam tournament setting uh, compared to the likes of the Novak Djokovic's of the world, who has won two, uh, you know, two titles here at Roland Garros and whatever, 21 or 22. I've lost count at this point. Uh, and you mentioned that Djokovic hasn't looked as good strong as he has in years past in the clay run-up. He has won no titles. He has gone out uh, embarrassingly in two of the three tournaments that he's played in. Um, And I would say there is cause for concern beyond just his form on the court in the nature of how he's dealing with his elbow injury. There's a little bit of tennis elbow creeping into the old uh, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, uh, elbow, and that's affected his serve. It's affected his forehand. It's affected his ability to put spin on the ball, and all of those things are concerns. That said, we had the same sort of pearl clutching about Djokovic's health with the injury he was dealing with to, I believe his hamstring or his quad heading into the Australian open. And I think he won that tournament dropping one set and it really didn't even feel like that much of a sweat. If we're being honest, like that was a absolute, uh, you know, cakewalk for him. So, you know, He's the the experience matters when it comes to slam tennis. The ability to navigate best of five on the men's side is important. And so Djokovic's experience, I think, should put him still at the top of the board in terms of likelihood to win. Am I running to the window to bet plus 225? No, I think that's probably close. It's in the ballpark. Uh, And I think your better bet for uh, betting Djokovic in this tournament is just prey on the fact that the market doesn't expect much from him here and look for opportunities to bet him in match if he goes down a set or even two sets, particularly if it's against one of the up-and-comers, the Alcarezes, the Runes, the Sinners, right? He still has the mental advantage over these guys as we put clearly on display two years ago in the final when he went down two sets to love uh, to Sissipa pass and then came roaring back i think that is a kind of the name of the game he likes to let the matches come to him he wants to use his endurance to his advantage uh and so i'm mostly going to look for live betting opportunities on Djokovic along the way as opposed to really getting heavily involved in the plus 225 range now i did kind of mention i do think sinner should be in the top four in terms of price but i don't love the value you're getting with the current bet on him he's his hold break stats have been outstanding on this clay swing uh but he's dealing with a little bit of an uh you know an injury situation 
situation as well. And he also has yet to solve best of five tennis, even though he was the best player at the U.S. Open. Um, and then uh, you mentioned Medvedev as well. Medvedev would be my third choice for this championship. I can't believe I'm saying those words, considering what yeah. I my opinion of his clay clay game uh, at the beginning of the 2023 calendar. But he has completely reshaped what he can do on clay, uh, and he is much much more dangerous than he ever has been for this particular tournament. So uh, I think giving him a realistic shout, especially because he's now the two seed. I don't know. So I'm not sure if you saw that, but Medvedev won the Rome title, which vaulted him into the number two seed for this tournament. So he is on the bottom half of the draw. He is the only player that you know will be opposite Carlos Alcaraz, the one seed. Djokovic is still kind of floating. He could be the three. He could get, you know, he could be the top seed in the third quarter. He could be the top seed in the second quarter. We do not know. Uh, if he gets drawn into the second quarter, that makes Medvedev's odd price at 12 to 1 very wrong, in my opinion. This is another big three ish situation where you have three players with slam quality uh, in Djokovic with the, number one with a bullet, Alcaraz and Medvedev in the second tier, in my opinion. Uh, and so, again, if Alcaraz and Djokovic are on the top of the draw and Medvedev is on the bottom, then 12 to 1 is an absolute, that is grand theft larceny type of pricing. Uh, so absolutely we'll be watching carefully in the draw to see if we can capture some Medvedev at price. Uh, and then, you know, I think realistically expecting something from Sinner here just based on the quality of, of tennis. And while Holger Nodskov Vitus Rune has a he has a uh, he has a a high place in my heart, and I believe he will be your U.S. Open champion. Uh, I think he uh, has been a little bit uh, overbet, as they say. Nine to yes. one, seven to one, whatever the price you're finding in the market right now for Rune, it's not a good price. <laughs> it's, he's, he's played too much tennis and he's, he's going to eventually win a French Open, I believe, based on the quality of his game on clay. Uh, and in fact, we may spend the next 10 years handicapping the French Open and it might be Alcaraz Rune. Who you got this year? Who's playing a little, you know, a little bit better? This guy or this guy? Like that's entirely possible. Could be a three way race with, with them and. Yannick Sinner, who knows? Um, but I think as we currently stand, there's no no value in that price. Yep. All right. Well, we've got to wrap. But what I will say to close out about the men's side of the draw is that what everyone thought the Boston Celtics were after game three <laughs> of the Eastern Conference Finals, that's what Yannick Sinner is. And uh, he will not be winning this tournament. Uh, I get involved with him at that price i agree that uh that medvedev particularly because medvedev his price has plummeted might be able to still find some uh, some stale prices on that uh, daniel uh and uh, and get involved all right don't forget to check out nbcsportsedge.com for more information to help you with your wages thanks for everyone watching on the nbc sports youtube channel and if you're listening to us in podcast form don't forget to rate and subscribe from jake croucher and Jinsik. we'll see you tomorrow cheers